If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to the Weekly Warrior Podcast, where we are forging genuine human connection through fitness, health, mindset, and nutrition. Let's get to the show with your hosts, Jared Bradford, Connor Edelbrock, and Corey Mueller. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the Weekly Warrior Podcast. Podcast, podcast. Who is that? It's God. God. Hello, Jared. Hi, Corey. (laughs) What's going on, buddy? Not much, man. Happy to be here with you. Yeah, this is we're uh, we're live here in L.A. in our new recording studio. Yeah, life is good. Yeah, life is good. We're on the hundred and fifty thousandth floor. Yeah, uh, we we just became public for our stocks too. So if you're here to invest, <laughs> so we're you can find us on Robinhood and, and the New York Stock Exchange. So we're there. Yes, yes. Speaking of shameless plugs, I want to remind all of you listening especially uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, to go ahead and drop a rating and a review. And if you're not subscribed to The Weekly Warrior, make sure you do that. really helps our visibility and helps with the ability for people to find us. And also, share us. The best way to grow the audience is to share with a friend or family member, because chances are they trust you. If you listen to us, you're probably smart. They probably trust your input. So please do that. Yes. So anyway, I have a little bit of knowledge for you today. We'll call it a Weekly Warrior Knowledge Nugget. Weekly Warrior Knowledge Nugget. This is going to be really beneficial for everybody listening, and it is this time of year. So it is, I mean, we're in the middle of fall, almost November, and it's getting a little chilly out, right? Man, there's nothing better on a chilly day than a nice cup of soup. Now, there's an evolution to this that makes it more performance-based. And soup is eaten with a spoon, right, in a bowl and a fork, really, if you want to get ballsy. You could eat it with a fork, you know, Yeah. get crazy. Chili. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's chili soup. That's a different question for a whole different episode. It's a hot dog uh, sandwich. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Questions that can't be answered right this very second. I don't know. Okay. So recently, Connor sort of turned me on to this, but I have been really feeling the benefits of bone broth lately and specifically grass fed organic bone broth is the best. And we've been, we've been using, uh, like any time that we make a roasted chicken, we will, Boil down, or not boil down, we use an instant pot, put some spices and some seasonings in it, mm-hmm. and pressure cook that some bitch until it relinquishes its wonderful juices. It's we dead. also found, yeah, till it's even deader than it already was, yeah. Um, we also found that there's a powdered organic grass-fed uh, bone broth at Meyer. We buy it at Meyer. I don't even know what the brand is, but there's lots huh. of brands like it. It's really awesome. Like you just have you hot water. Mix it in like water or milk or chocolate milk. Yeah. Chocolate bone broth milk. I mean, <laughs> that sounds so mm. gross. Yeah. Yum. Some marshmallows on top. <laughs> yeah. It's good for you. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> God, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> um, it's the new Nesquik. Yeah, you rip open the package, you pour it in, and then we have a little Mm -hmm. blender thing. You push a button on the top, and it vibrates and blends it all together. And it's warm, and it is very nutritious. And let me tell you why. I'm going to share the top six bone broth benefits according to Medical News Today. It's It was really interesting to read about it because I've really been enjoying the bone broth. So 
Long story short with bone broth, it's a liquid containing brewed bones and connective tissues. So you can use, I mean, you can use cattle, you can use chicken, even fish bones. Fish stock is good. And drinking bone broth uh, can be beneficial for the joints and the digestive system, amongst other things. So here's why. Number one, it is highly nutritious. Bones, right? You, you bones. I'm just kidding, not you, but you are. Rich in vitamins, nutrients, uh, calcium, magnesium, and phosphorus. Tissues and bones also contain collagen. Cooking collagen turns it into gelatin, which provides the body with amino acids, which are the building blocks of what bones? Muscles. Protein, which is the building block of muscles. Absolutely. So there's number one. It also contains uh, other micro and macronutrients such as iron, vitamins A and K, fatty acids, selenium, zinc, and manganese. Um, so, yeah, though, just alone with the nutritional benefits, it's pretty dope. Uh, bone broth may protect the joints. So, like I said, it's a source of gelatin, which breaks down into collagen. This is supremely important to your joints. I'm not going to go any further than that. There's a whole big science about it, but we ain't got time for that right now. Uh, helping to fight osteoarthritis. Mm. You as a PTA know about osteoarthritis. It's not fun, mm -hmm. right? Not good. Not good. Not good. So again, it is helping your joints, helping with pain, stiffness, um, inflammation, all that fun stuff, reducing inflammation. Uh, the other thing I found that was interesting was, again, it reduces inflammation, but it's also really good for your gut. It provides good gut bugs in your stomach, um, and those are always good to help balance it, it specifically contains glutamine, which helps heal the intestinal barrier and mm -hmm. uh, in humans and animals that they've, you know, given bone broth. Mm -hmm. um, it aids sleep. So people who take glycine, which is in bone broth before going to sleep, uh, state that they feel better and have less fatigue during the following day. Now, with me, like when I drink bone broth, I just feel a general sort of calm. I feel warm. I feel calm. I feel nice. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just pleasant. So, um, and then there's other stuff like it helps support weight loss. And that's pretty simple because it contains a serving of bone broth contains anywhere from nine to like 13 grams of protein and like five to 10 grams of pretty healthy fat. So it's an appetite. I don't want to say suppressant, but it, I mean, it's like drinking a sort of a protein shake. Yeah. And it's really nice. It's easy to it's easy to consume. It does curb hunger and it's easy on the go. You make it, you put it in a thermos and you take it out, you know, on the trail if you're, you know, hunting, anything like that. So something I've been enjoying the last couple of weeks and uh, I wanted to share it with our warrior audience. This has been Bone, Bone Broth but brought to you by Corey. Weekly Warrior Knowledge Nugget. Well, let's go back to a time. What do you say? Let's get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. Let's go to the meat potatoes. Yes. Let's go back to a time when uh, they were required to melt down bones for nutrition, mm. literally, or else yeah. they would not survive. Yeah, I'm there. April 21st, 1838. John Muir. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. John Muir was born in the greatest city of the greatest country on this planet. Dunbar, Scotland. He and his family, <laughs> including his mother and father, Daniel and Anne Gilry Muir, and his seven siblings, spent the first 11 years of John's life in Scotland before immigrating to the U.S. of A. and settling in Wisconsin to over 160 acres of, of farmland. This homestead that they moved to and immigrated was thought to thought by many uh, to be the first plot of nature that was preserved simply for the fact that it was nature. Mm. And John was about a, he was 11, 12 years old at this time when they first moved in. And little John, he grew up with an extremely strict father who had the children laboring on the farm from sunup to sundown. 
and enforced memorization of the Bible upon John. Mm. Though he was held to this strict schedule and upbringing, John had a keen sense of creativity and curiosity, which led him to be quite the inventor. He invented gadgets and machinery, including a horse feeder, a table saw, a wooden thermometer, and this is the best. He invented a lifting device which would hoist John's bed upward before the crack of dawn to ensure that he could not sleep in so he would fall out of bed. <laughs> he invented that. And this is That's the fucking-40s. Yeah. These invented inventions led him to the state fair where he won several awards and recognition for his ingenuity. Later, John attended the University of Wisconsin where he continued to invent things. One such novelty included a desk that popped out a book, opened it up for a set period of time, closed the book, put it away, and then opened up a new book. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Here, John was also given his first lesson in botany, which changed his life forever. I didn't realize that he was... I mean, obviously, I know he's a huge name in the conservation of nature and whatever, but I didn't realize he was an inventor and tinkerer as well. Neither did I. I yeah. mean, you dig into this guy's life and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting, especially like the childhoods of these people that are like well-known and go on to do great things. Mm-hmm. Their childhoods are super interesting in their upbringings. I found that probably the most, uh, I mean, you just learn so much about them that like, oh, he didn't just do this conservation thing here. It was like he did a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Well, he was given his first lesson in botany, and he decided that college didn't satiate his desire for learning and outdoors and dropped out of school in 1863. Historical context, the Civil War was going on for about two plus years at this point, and John actually went home from college and just waited the pretty much inevitability of being drafted into the Civil War. Mm. It ended up not happening, and I guess there was a lot of people that thought of John Muir later on that he was a draft dodger. But, you know, fuck them. When Muir (laughs) dropped out of school, he decided that he wanted to explore the natural world. After all, he grew up in Wisconsin in what he described as, quote, sunny woods overlooking flowery meadows and a lake dressed with water lilies. Mm. This upbringing, again, fed John's lust for nature. He traveled the northern areas of the United States studying botany and taking odd jobs to support himself. He was very successful at aiding factories improve their efficiency and work output due to his inventiveness and ingenuity. Because, again, he was really, really good with his hands, invented a bunch of cool stuff that... I mean, who thinks of something that would pop open a book? That's just one example. But he was very good at, at seeing what needed to be done and actually implementing something to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 1867, while working in a factory, John Muir was severely injured in his eye, which left him blinded for a short time. Uh, a short time meaning about, I think it was upwards of six months that he was blind and he was wow. in, in bed in bed just doing nothing, recovering. Yeah. When he recovered, he decided to go all in on the call of nature. He straight up pulled a Forrest Gump and began walking from an Indiana town down to the Gulf of Mexico in Florida. From there, he hopped on a ship to Cuba, then down to Panama, before sailing up the western shores of Mexico and present-day Baja California and into California itself, making port in San Francisco. Mm. In 1868, John Muir walked from San Francisco to Yosemite Valley, and this marks a pivotal landmark moment in his life. At this point, John is 30 years old. And he looked at the people following him and said, pretty tired, think I'll go home now. And then he went into the cave in Yosemite. Didn't come back out for 30 years. He took on work as a shepherd and worked at a mill during his stay at Yosemite, and even built a log cabin where he lived, which is, after being visiting Yosemite, that's fucking cool. It's really cool. Because, uh, like, Yosemite is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. Is that, and, like, is that cabin there still? No. No. Oh. No, it's not. And if it was, it would that'd be even cooler. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I know, it's not there, and I haven't 
seen anything about it. I feel like it would be been to Yosemite like twenty five times. Yeah, I, I, I have a map on my wall somewhere, <laughs> and uh, it would be a big, pretty big deal. And I don't think it's there anymore. I think that uh, it was a very like he built it and just stayed there for like a year or something. And it, it was, wasn't you know, a brick. Is that what they say in that song? Yeah, it's Mate Mate, just letting it all hang out. Yeah, she's a brick. (laughs) House. (laughs) I didn't know that that's what he said. Yeah. That's the worst guy. Okay. There you go. He spent his days studying uh, Yosemite, hiking its landscape, and observing its, its rich ecosystem, as well as guiding hikes in the valley. He began having his writings and work published in the New York Tribune and his theories on glacial activity being a main driver in the formation of Yosemite was groundbreaking due to its direct countering of previous scientific theory regarding the formation of Yosemite. That's a fucking mouthful. Basically, mm-hmm. he he theorized that these glaciers, you know, moved in, broke apart and formed these huge valleys and walls that made Yosemite what it is and previous scientists were like you know said something else like god did it or something yeah isn't it crazy though nature be that way i mean think about it like it's when you watch like a boat go through the water it creates sort of a a valley behind it obviously it fills in immediately with water but that's essentially what the glaciers did as they moved across the landscape and it makes a lot of sense that's exactly what it looks like when you when you see it especially from like a bird's eye view that's exactly what it looks like is a big non aerodynamic boat <laughs> that yeah. is not designed to to cut smoothly through just uh, it's makes, crazy he just makes his way through just a big blob mm-hmm. uh, yeah just goes right through i'm going to go north now i'll go north now give me a million years <laughs> nature's wild <laughs> nature's wild through the early 1870s, more of John's writings were published in well-known papers across the country. And that, that's pretty that's a pretty big deal. He's in Yosemite, like, and he's getting published in New York. And now he's kind of getting across the country with his writings. There's not, like, a big mail system. This is the 1870s. He's 60s. doing, like, frontline reporting of yeah. the time. Like, that's, yeah. I mean, that's groundbreaking. He's in the dirt, in the, he's in the shit, and he's, he's discovering things accurately. Right. And it's just from like, that's true. And just from a logistic standpoint, he's got to write this stuff. And then like someone has to be like, like run it away, you know, Pony Express. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is not easy stuff to do. Yeah. It's amazing. And there's no cars. Like he had to walk. All right. We'll continue. Mm -hmm. More of his public writings were published in well-known papers across the country. He was gaining popularity and recognition, not only from his observations, but also his obsession with Yosemite. One expedition in Yosemite met a, a geological team led by a Professor LeConte, who said of John, quote, Mr. Muir is a gentleman of rare intelligence, of much knowledge and of science. A man of so much intelligence, tending to a sawmill. Huh! He is a most passionate <laughs> lover of nature, plants and flowers and forest and sky and clouds and mountains seem to haunt his imagination. Basically, the guy's crazy about nature. It's a pretty good yeah. way to put it. Yep. In 1871, I'm going to go kind of like, the dates kind of move quickly here, and but a lot of cool things happened throughout his life. Um, so I'm going to kind of like boom, boom, boom a little bit. In 1871, John Muir was visited by the famous writer, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, John is a quote, straight killer, a real G of nature, end quote. You like that? I like that. <laughs> Do you want to know who else? Uh, you want to know who else really liked John Muir? Who? Teddy Roosevelt. Him and him and John Muir were buds. Yeah, that's true. Very good. Very good. Very good. I want to share a quote, but you might you might share the quote that I'm gonna. So I'm not going to yet. We'll get to that. It's way. That's one thing. Like, well, me and you learned about John Muir. Like, we heard the name. I think was mm-hmm. through Teddy Roosevelt. Like Teddy, obviously yeah. there's a story there and we'll get to it. But John Muir lived like an entire life mm-hmm. before Teddy even ever came into it. Even, you know, 
Teddy's in his interaction. John was pretty was, old already by the time Teddy met him. Yeah. It, it was a very short interaction they had, which was mm-hmm. surprising to me. In 1872, Yosemite, or sorry, Yellowstone becomes the first national park. Muir continues working on his writings about Yosemite. In 1873, Muir spends his winter in Oakland and continues to publish writings on Yosemite. He solo climbs Mount Whitney, the tallest peak in the lower 48 states, which was the first known ascension of the eastern route. Muir would spend the next few years in the Bay Area and setting out on frequent adventures. He met his future wife, Louise, Louisa. I wasn't, there was a lot of different, it was Louise, Louisa, one of those, mm-hmm. whose father owned a very successful fruit farm in the Bay Area. So this was 1873, kind of gets away from the valley a little bit, starts being in the Bay Area. And this still is amazing to me because just knowing the, the land out here now, like there's no cars. He had to go by fucking horse or mule or walk, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, these are not easy things to do. In 1875, he again summits Mount Whitney and Mount Shasta, both over 14,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And he takes a three-month mule trip into the Sierras, where he, quote, hunted big redwoods, end quote. In 1877... I know, right? Like, (laughs) yes, we're going now. He's just going out, yeah, he's just going out to the woods. Mm -hmm. In 1877 was... A hell of a year for for John Muir. In May, he guides a U.S. geologic survey in the Utah mountains and visits Salt Lake City. Uh, He meets a bunch of Mormon families. He explores the San Gabriel Mountains of Southern California. In October, he floats from Chico, California, 200 miles down the Sacramento River on a small boat. He initially named this boat the Spoonbill, but rechristened after Muir um, because of he renamed it the snag jumper because of its prowess in navigating obstacles in the river. I thought that was funny. A brief side trip involved climbing the highest of the Marysville Buttes, which he measured as 1,800 feet above the base, 1,950 feet above the river. Basically, like you're going down a river and you kind of like see a big giant fucking wall. And he just decided he was going down the river and was like, yeah, I'll, I'll climb that. Let's do that. <laughs> In November, so one month after he he does 200 miles down this river on this little boat, he explores Kings Canyon and other high regions of the southern Sierra Nevada mountain range, uh, over 12,000 feet in elevation. At this point, uh, after exploring those, he returned to Hopeton, which is near Snelling, just small little towns um, in the valley, and he built a small raft and floated another 250 miles down the Merced River, to the San Joaquin River, past Stockton, and through the Thule region into the bay. And again, if you know these areas, like there's no water in these rivers anymore at all. They're fucking bone dry. So that is uh, pretty cool. He He's just a dude that is totally self-sufficient, and it's just such a free life. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to build this and float down. Like There's no issue with anything. He just yeah. does it. Yep. Um, once he gets back to the Bay Area, he briefly visits uh, the family of his future wife, and then he goes and climbs Mount Diablo. <laughs> sounds scary. It sounds very scary. In 1879, things are starting to heat up now for John. It, basically, up until this point, he's exploring a lot, writing a lot about Yosemite, and his work in conservation truly hasn't started. He's really writing about science and how Yosemite was formed in like different theories about nature and things like that. But in 1879, when John was 41 years old, he finally got engaged to his wife and he promptly kisses her goodbye and heads off to Alaska for an extended expedition, exploring glaciers, mountains, and differing tree species. At this time, John's writings are truly popping off like champagne at a wedding. Works are getting published everywhere across the country. Mm -hmm. He's meeting all sorts of well-known climbers, leading expeditions, hikers, scientists, explorers, um, all across the western, the mountain ranges. Things begin to slow down once he marries and gets his first daughter. He is now 44 years old. He began his work in, in science and writing um, years ago and has made pretty good headwind, but he decides he wants to settle down and he becomes a rancher and a fruit farmer for eight years. So just as quickly as he's about to kind of get to this cusp of, I don't know, really getting into his conservation work, he gets married, has a daughter, and doesn't yeah. really do anything for about eight years. Is that years. like the precipice of greatness? 
We were this yeah. close to greatness. This close. <laughs> and I think that's crazy. Like learning again about these people that have done these great things and then put it in perspective of our own lives. Um, even though these people did these awesome things, John Muir ended up being a great, one of the greatest conservationists in the history of the country and in the world. There was eight years of his life where he's just like, I'm a fruit farmer. Well, if you think about it too, though, he was going, he was going nonstop for, yeah. you know, 45 years. So that's true. He took a few years to relax. And I, I'm sure that was, he, and he's spending time with his daughter. Like he had a kid, mm-hmm. he was married. And I mean, at that point, that's, that's a, that's in that time, he was pretty old to have a newborn child. Yeah. And there, I mean, he, couldn't have been off gallivanting around. He wouldn't have been married for all that long if he was. Mm. The fact that he got engaged and then immediately <laughs> went to Alaska for, you know, months probably was is pretty, pretty awesome. It's very but yeah, responsible. Time to re- rest and recharge and That's true. And he, if he didn't do this, maybe he was be like you know, maybe he dies somewhere or something. Or, right. You know, anything yeah. could happen or he just burns out and is like I'm done with this. Yeah. That's that's a good point. Good point. Thanks. Okay. In 1884, at age 46, John finally took his wife to Yosemite. <laughs> his life's work finally made, took her there. After <laughs> years of dagging, she no, I, I thought that was funny because it was like a big point in his life. It, it kind of restarted his love of nature. He hasn't really been to Yosemite in years. So this yeah. prompts Muir to reestablish that adventurous spirit and takes a trip to Northern Oregon after he gets back, and then over to Wisconsin to see his family. Mm. He writes about Yellowstone National Park after his visit there. He then has a premonition that his father is dying and gathers his children for one last visit. John and his family head to Missouri to see his father who passed away with John at his bedside. We're just going to put a pin in that. One year later, John would have his second child, Helen Muir. So two kids, father just died, starting to get back into nature. John continues to re-uptake his call of nature and shows what is today called Muir Woods. So basically, he, he goes to Muir Woods, what is today known as Muir Woods, mm-hmm. to British evolutionist Alfred Russell Wallace, who wanted to see the area that is just north of San Francisco to witness, quote, the area once dominated by redwoods, which has been destroyed due, due to, to supply lumber and timber mm. to nearby cities, end mm-hmm. quote. We visited this area because it's now a protected monument, uh, thanks to Teddy. And uh, it used to be, yeah, full of these huge redwoods. And it's literally 15 minutes north of San Francisco, like yeah. a metropolis. Right. And yeah, it was kind of being totally torn down. And it's still really not what it used to be. Adventurous, uh, adventures and influences like these continue to light a fire in John to preserve nature for the simple reason that it's nature and should be allowed to be enjoyed. At age 50, Muir again climbs Mount Shasta. He soon is accompanied to Yosemite, where he was urged to write letters and declarations that urged for the conservation and protection of Yosemite. So basically, he's, people are telling him now, and people in his party, you have to write to the government, you have to start making these plans and proposals to protect this, because like Muir Woods, this shit's going to go south. Mm-hmm. In 1890, after years of articles campaigning, hiking, discovering, and persuading, Yosemite officially became a national park. I thought that would be a bigger deal, but it kind of just happened. Like he, he wasn't really fighting for it to become a national park for decades. He was simply writing about it and sending out his scientific articles, things mm-hmm. like that. And I'm sure there was you know, uh, a campaign, but it wasn't super heavy. Uh, until those 1880s and then 1890 when it finally became a national park. Mm-hmm. Um, Muir would rally behind Kings Canyon, which is south of Yosemite by you know two and three hour car drive. But that would take another 49 years of work before this area became a national park. So that Muir kind of got that fight started but never saw the end of it. Mm-hmm. The fact that Yosemite is a national park now, big deal but not the end for, for John Muir. In 1891, his life is truly reinvigorated when his brother-in-law and sister moved to the ranch, the fruit farm, because he still has that. He's still doing that. And they assume ranch management. So this freed John to further write and explore. Mm. 
1892, perhaps the highest achievement in Muir's life occurred, the founding of the Sierra Club. Basically what I got out of this, the fact that Yosemite was a national park was cool uh, and great, but it's not quite protected. It's, it's a national park. There's no funding involved yet, um, and there's no actual governmental protection. Mm-hmm. So the founding of the Sierra Club was significant because it consisted of devoted citizens that rallied to Muir's messaging about conservation. It was the first of its kind organization to protect nature for nature's sake. Muir served as president of the Sierra Club until his death. So basically they would go out and these people would explore different places every year and they would hold rallies and, and public outings to promote conservation. And the Sierra Club is still a thing today. It is indeed. They're going strong. Mm -hmm. Through the next several years, John would travel the country and eventually to Europe, continuing his speeches, writing, and lectures on conservation. He again has a premonition. And this is where I take the pin out and pull that thing back, because I thought this was super interesting, if it is true. He has a premonition, this time about his mother, and returns to her bedside, where she passes away soon after. John is 58 years old. There's just a bunch of super interesting little notes throughout his life that mm. kind of, uh, I think when I was writing this and learning, he spends so much time in nature and he's probably got like such a relaxed vibe about him mm-hmm. that he's just in tune with people in his life. You just get a feeling, I guess. You right. Know? Yeah. And I'm sure he's, he's probably sitting there and he looks to his, whoever he's, He's doing these, two, you know, speech tours. He's he's mm-hmm. like, I think I need to go home. Yeah, he's like, it like, seems like a time I'd go home. Yeah, it just and I think we we have lost some of that to a point because now in the the age of technology that we have, everything is instant. Communication is instant. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he could have been on his speech tour and his mother could have died and he would have, and you know, he might have never known. Mm-hmm. But it's just that something tells you. And that's something that's an interesting point, because uh, the last, I don't know, couple of years, my grandpa passed away a couple of years ago, and it was one of those things where we kind of knew it was coming. And it was it was one. It's like, hey, you need to come. And without even without questioning it, you just go. You just need to go Mm -hmm. because it's you think in your mind, well, I'll go, you know, I'm busy. I'll go later. It'll be fine. He'll be fine. She'll be fine. Whoever, you know, and you should always listen to your initial gut instinct, which is generally to go. And I went and I was there with my grandpa when he passed away. And, uh, it was, I'm not going to say it was a great experience, but I'm, I'm glad that I listened to that initial gut instinct of go, you know? Yeah. So, and I, I think we, we in these days have lost a little bit of that. Whether it's our connection to nature or what you know, whatever, there could be a lot of that to it. But when you get those gut instincts, you're generally, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, and it's your gut. Uh, mm-hmm. That is not just an ex- expression. There's, well, sometimes your brain overthinks it. Your gut doesn't. Good, yeah, there's pretty good research coming out now and stuff like that that connects the gut to the brain literally based on mood and uh it it actually has a lot of like you know like really anxious or depressed people have gut issues gut permeability and things like that Mm -hmm. anyways that's totally different but Mm -hmm. not really not totally different but it's um, all connected it is your body is connected and like he had a gut feeling a premonition is what it was called right he followed it and i think it does have something to do with nature just the ability to slow down. I recently listened to a podcast about uh, nature meditation, um, which is just earthing, right? So walking with earthing, no shoes and socks and putting your feet in the river and watching the river for hour or two hours, watching the clouds. And I started being being really intentional about earthing lately. And I have, I don't know that I've noticed an active difference, but you definitely feel a difference when you're doing it. Just mm-hmm. walking around the yard, you know, doing whatever you're doing without shoes on. Yeah. It makes, it does. Yeah. You feel the earth, you feel the dirt. It, you do feel connected to the energy a little bit more. And yeah. it's, especially when you're intentionally thinking about it. Right. Because yeah. we're always go, go, go. 
So when you take that time and take your shoes off and and just be, you know, mm-hmm. that it helps it helps the everything, relaxation, calming anxiety, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've enjoyed earthing. I highly earthing recommend. Earthing is good. You have. Yeah. We should we'll talk we'll put a pin in earthing. Yeah, earthing, yep. Put a pin That's in a that. Good right episode there. idea. That's my idea board. It's big. <laughs> back to Muir. Uh, back to Muir. He is now 60 years old. He takes his fight for conservation to Washington and lobbies to increase federal management of Yosemite, among other topics, including expanding national parks to other notable areas throughout the U.S. Mm-hmm. So again, Yosemite is a national park, but the National Park Service is not a thing. There's no funding going in to actually protect Yosemite. It's just a national park. Yeah. Not just, but you know, it's a, uh, you get it. There's nothing going on to make sure no one People comes are out there. Yeah. They're doing whatever they want. Nobody's stopping yeah. them. All right. Peeing There's on no trees consequence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's at least the words, but in 1901, a guy by the name of Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. We know that guy. Elected president of the United States of America. Two years later, in 1903, Roosevelt spent three days camping alone with John Muir in Yosemite National Park. This is exactly what I was going to talk about, so I'm glad you're doing it. (laughs) To a lot of people, this is the creme de la creme, the peak of the mountain of John Muir's life. The reason that he became so influential was this meetup with Theodore Roosevelt. How would you like to be sitting on a log around a campfire with those two? I don't think I could keep up. I think I would just listen. I think I would just listen. I don't know. I don't think I would be able to intellectually even be on the same fucking log as them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah. I would love to listen because the things that it probably talked about were mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whether it was, I don't think it, from everything I gathered, it didn't seem like John was super philosophical, like things like that, or, you know, like poetic. I didn't get much of that. But I, I think, think Teddy he, too he is was, more on the he liked to hunt and yeah. do that type of stuff more. And I think that's the biggest dichotomy when it comes to Teddy Roosevelt was he was really big about conservation, but he was also a huge trophy hunter, which mm-hmm. I I kind of disagree with the the practice of trophy hunting. I think it's silly. I don't really think it does anything helpful for the environment. You know, if you listen to this and you think I'm wrong and you can make an educated agreement why, I'd love to hear it. But people who go and kill animals for trophies, they go on African safari hunts and stuff Super like that. Cool. Makes it Super is cool. I mean, it's yeah. cool. It's uh, cool I'm experience. Being sarcastic. I'm being sarcastic. That, but it is a cool experience. I don't. Under, I I think it's dumb. You know. But that was something Teddy was really big into, and I think that modern hunting practices have been honed a little bit mm-hmm. to conserve the land and the species, but manage them appropriately you know yeah. so anyway yeah. i was a, i i digress <laughs> i i kind of want a hippo on my wall yeah let's you just know? go kill one yeah i want that i want it we can't we can't just let a hippo be a hippo yeah i he's on my wall now i did yeah. that so yeah. i yeah there i i see what you're that saying. was their biggest it, difference though Muir wasn't, from my knowledge, and you probably know more because you did all this research, he wasn't a big hunter. He was just a nature guy. Yeah, he wanted conservation. He was, in mm-hmm. truth, uh, an inventor and a scientist. Kind of, mm-hmm. That's what I got out of him. So, yep. All right, let's go back to this, okay? Yes. Uh, two years, uh, so in 1903, Roosevelt spent three days camping alone with John Muir in the Yosemite National Park. This sparks Roosevelt. This sparks Roosevelt's esteemed enthusiasm to preserve nature. And John Muir played a huge role in the formation of nearly all of the national parks, landmarks, nature reserves in the country, as he had just beckoned the favor of the president of the United States. It's interesting, after these three days in camping, like, Roosevelt just kind of fucks off and doesn't really, um, you know, it wasn't like, all right, come visit me, or let's continue writing, let's keep meeting up, blah, blah, blah. Like, he just kind of like, yeah, that's great, I agree with what you're doing. And yeah. we'll work on it. And then he goes away. Following this occasion, Muir would go on a world tour exploring parts of Europe, Asia, New Zealand, where at age 65, he climbed the Mueller Glacier. 
put that in there just for you, buddy. Yeah, thanks. Spelt it <laughs> the same way. He would return home and continue his campaign to return Yosemite, not return, but to form uh, a federal regulation and control of Yosemite, which would solidify its protection forever. Later this year in 1905, Mir's life, Mir's <laughs> wife, would sadly pass away. So uh, amidst of going on this whole world, the world tour and doing all these things, uh, his wife passes away. And he's mid-60s and he's still fucking hauling ass. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1906, the earthquake and great fire of San Francisco struck. And at this time, he is in the area. This fuels the idea of damming a valley uh, very well known to John Muir and other naturists. Uh, it was known as Hetch, Hetch Hetchy. And he wrote a bunch about Hetch Hetchy in his early days of Yosemite. It's, it's just north of San Francisco. It was a valley that was beloved by Muir for decades, and he frequently visited and, and wrote about its beauty and purpose. People wanted to dam this valley to gather water to supply San Francisco. And this was a, a huge public outrage that they didn't have enough water to put out this fire that could have kind of easily been oh. taken care of. But they definitely could have limited the damage, but they didn't have any water. Uh, they, they claimed it because they didn't have water. The fire was much more severe than it had to be. So obviously, John fought vehemently alongside the Sierra Club to prevent the damming of Hetch Hetchy. I didn't really get why. I think just strictly because it was nature and they didn't want to have human interference. Right. Um, this fight would go on for years until the battle was lost uh, in 1913, and Hetch Hetchy was damned for use of San Francisco. It eventually okay. reversed, I believe. Um, oh. So, I mean, as of now, I know that San Francisco pulls a fuck ton of water from the mountains, like near us, right? Through yeah. pipes and things like that, like so. Yep. Um, in those years, John not only fought for Hetch Hetchy, he also entered his seventies, traveled to South Africa, the Amazon River, where he had a lifelong dream of exploring the Amazon. And continues to be awarded degrees from Hale, Yale, Harvard, and the University of Wisconsin. Muir Woods was also established. This is the woods I was talking to you about before, just mm-hmm. north of San Francisco, which um, it was awarded a national monument by Teddy Roosevelt. Good old Teddy. Mm-hmm. This area of land was bought by a man named William Kent, who made the purchase under the table in cash money before a land development company was able to purchase it with the intent to destroy it for lumber. Mm. I believe William Kent bought it literally like the day before that the uh, company was coming in to tear it down and start bulldozing. Good, Good job, Bill. Just, yeah, yeah, just straight cash, homie. Yeah. In his final years, Mir continues to explore and write and fight for conservation of nature. He inspires people everywhere He goes and draws huge numbers of readers to his books, articles, and publishings. He accumulated mountains of literature and papers regarding Yosemite alone, to which he wanted to put together into a guidebook for the park. He's been writing about it for four decades, or over four decades, but to which he finally said, quote, I never imagined I had accumulated so vast a number. I thought that in a quiet day or two, I might select all that would be required for a Yosemite guidebook but the stuff seems enough for a score of big jungle books. And it's very hard, I find, to steer through on anything like a steady course in reasonable time. Dude's just living in a mountain of writings, maps, Mm -hmm. everything in his home. Yep. In 1914, when Muir was 76 years old, he dies of pneumonia in L.A. on Christmas Eve. Mm. His work teachings, adventures, and inspiration live on to this day and should live on to the end of days. His effort in conservation quite literally saved some of the most pristine and beautiful landscapes in the country and possibly the world, as his influence was not only felt in California, but stretched to Japan, Europe, Africa, and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Today, he is remembered for his loving spirit of nature and vivacious, kinetic attitude towards life. The John Muir Trail, a stretch of 212 miles beginning in Little Yosemite Valley and ending on Mount Whitney, the tallest peak in the lower 48, is well known and becoming ever more popular among travelers and serious hikers in his memory. So, 
that is the story of of John Muir. Very, very interesting. I thought that the interaction between him and Teddy was, it seemed like it was years long, but it was three days. Um, And can I share a little bit about a little bit more about that interaction? Not a lot, just a little bit. Yes. So when Teddy, Teddy obviously knew about John Muir and who he was and what he stood for. And Mm -hmm. so on March 14th in 1903, Teddy Roosevelt wrote a personal letter to John asking John to take him through the Yosemite Valley. And he said, this is what Teddy said. I do not want anyone with me but you. And I do. And I want to drop politics absolutely for four days and just be out in the open with you. He knew what he was getting into when he met with John Muir. And I think Teddy had a lot of ideas about what he wanted to do with conservation, but he needed somebody like John Muir to, to, you know, get him going, get him over the edge. And so after four days to, or during their four day to four days together, John Muir told Teddy many stories about the geology and the science and the natural history of California in general. Uh, They would, you know, explore the giant sequoias and the ponderosa pines, the forest animals. And there was a specific horseback ride to Glacier Point where Mm -hmm. Teddy woke up covered in snow and he loved it. He was Mm -hmm. just happy as a clam about it. So Teddy returned to Washington. He was refreshed. He was enthusiastic about conserving America's forest and its wilderness areas. So he he pushed Congress to pass laws to protect Mm -hmm. these wild lands. And he also transferred the responsibility of looking after these forest reserves to the Department of Agriculture in 1905. And he actually established the U.S. Forest Service. So and after that, I mean, he created national monuments, national parks, wildlife sanctuaries. Can you give a guess to how many acres that he protected? That's just in his. Yeah, just in his time as president. How many acres did Teddy Roosevelt protect? Yes, he was in direct responsibility for protecting these lands. I'm going to guess. Don't Google it. (laughs) I'm not Googling it. 10 to 15 million acres. Man. More? I'm glad you're wrong. So Teddy actually saved approximately 230 million acres of public Mm. land for all Americans. That's amazing. The biggest thing... I say this with a little bit of an asterisk next to it. I have a big issue with the only the biggest issue I have with this is pretty simply we screwed the native population out of these lands. They were always public lands to the natives and we sort of um, took them and used them for our own devices mm-hmm. uh, and never legally took them or if we did legally take them it was done through nefarious means yeah so so the only thing i'll say is there's two sides of conservation history right john muir is like a really good example of a pure conservationist teddy yes and no because he didn't he also he agreed with sort of the subject the subject subjectification of the native population he wanted to he wanted them to integrate into white mainstream society uh, if they wanted to. But he hoped that that would happen. Mm-hmm. So we and this is a this is a podcast topic for a different date talking about maybe the, the flip side of it, the Native American side of this. But I I have a lot of empathy for, you know, what how we ended up actually saving these lands because they were always free until the white man showed up. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So. Um, but the fact that they were able to be conserved and saved is still amazing. 230 million acres by two guys, basically John Muir inspired Teddy to do, to make the politics happen. Cause John was not a politician. Like he wasn't a politician. He wasn't going to do that, but Teddy, Teddy was, and Teddy knew how important it was, which is amazing. And now we have all of that, all of that land to enjoy. So. There that was that, my little sidebar about that camping trip. <laughs> yeah, there is that uh, the side of conservation too, where mm-hmm. what like the native side, like what the fuck are you talking about? We've been here for thousands of years, right? This is just like, this is just land. It's not yeah, your I mean, land, and yeah, 
why you like, yeah, even on like we were talking about John Muir, this white dude from Scotland coming in and being like the savior of the right. Yosemite. And like now people, people natives, people were there before and and traveled there for millennia probably. Yeah. Right. And uh, so it is interesting. That's a very political topic, I think. But the fact is it's protected now. There's a lot of money behind it. The National Park Service does Mm -hmm. uh, a great job of of taking care of it. And uh, I think with with the the sort of the way that history played out, not that it was right. But the fact that these prop these lands were saved for the public and not sold off to private entities was the best thing that could have happened. Hmm. So we can talk about the whiteification and all the bullshit social justice stuff. And it's it's important that I think that is important to talk about that stuff. But it's a bigger topic than we have yeah. time for today. <laughs> I think the fact is, too, it. They were tearing these places down. Muir Woods is a great example. They were bulldozing it. The trees are huge. There's you chop down one of those trees, and you can who knows how much that's going to be useful for. And those giant sequoia redwoods too. I mean the Mm -hmm. enormous trees that yeah. It's a lumberjack. Well, it's like all the in in northern Michigan, the old growth pine forests. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's very little of those left Mm -hmm. in Michigan when that's what that's what covered northern Michigan. And now there are very few places like Hartwick. Hartwick Pine State Park is a great example of old growth pine forests. And there's not many examples of that left. And if if you're in Michigan, you should. Hartwick Pines, very little park, very not really well known. But go walk through Hartwick Pines and you'll feel different walking through those trails. You remember walking through there and like everything. It's all old growth. The trees that are there are generally pretty fucking big and old. Mm -hmm. And just the layout of them is you just get a different feel in this mm-hmm. woods. Yeah. So it's very interesting. Hartwick Pines. Go check it yeah. out. Okay. This is great. We, we're ready to wrap this up, huh? And I, I think this opens up the door for a lot of conversation about lots of these things, right? Because conservation is a big topic and there's lots of different, there's the forestry aspect, there's minerals, there's animals, there's, you know, fish, all of these things that, now we we have a responsibility to to protect uh, mm-hmm. because quite I mean we rely on it more than anyone can ever understand. Yeah. So yeah. Absolutely. The fight goes on. Indeed. All right, my friend. That was wonderful. We'll be back next week. <laughs>